You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Hello again and uh, welcome again uh, to Faith Presbyterian Church. We're going to look this morning at a passage from Luke chapter 6. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were also looking at Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 6. So Luke 6, 6 through 11 is what we'll look at this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, Patrick's ready to to get a Bible to you so that you can see the passages as I refer to them over the course of the sermon. So don't be shy. If you do not have a Bible, would you please uh, wave your hand so that we can get a Bible uh, to you? Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, is where we'll look this morning. Uh, this morning, it is a, it's, a, it's another Sabbath event. It's on the Sabbath. This event takes place in the synagogue. Two weeks ago, we looked at a Sabbath event that did not take place in an actual synagogue. Um, so here at Sabbath, we're in the synagogue. I think there's a few things that we can glean from this passage about how we are to treat the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday, uh, here and now. But I don't think that's the point of the passage. But I want to say a couple of applications at the very end in terms of how we ought to view the Christian Sabbath. But again, I don't think it's the point. The, the point of this passage is closer to this uh, inner debate that is happening among the Pharisees. Uh, when you read the passage, you'll see that the Pharisees are uh, getting ready to pounce on Jesus, to accuse him. And as Jesus is preaching, they're thinking to themselves. In fact, the word that Luke uses is they're having this internal debate. So little theologians, here's what I'd like for you to draw. I'd like for you to draw a human brain... Okay, that's what, that's easy, right? So you're a human brain, but this brain is arguing inside of itself. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're listening to Jesus preach, but their minds aren't on his sermon. Their, their minds are, are going through this debate. How can we trap this man? Look how many times this man has broken our law. And they have this inner, internal debate going on in their heads. So can you draw that? Well, I don't know. Let's see if you can draw that. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, that's, uh, that's our passage this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for speaking to us by your word. Would, uh, would you, Holy Spirit, use my words that the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son and your own glory would be proclaimed in my words, even if these words aren't immediately useful as they come out of my lips? Would you use me? For the glory of the Trinity. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Listen to God's word. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to... Excuse me. And after looking around at them all, he said to him... Stretch out your hand. 
And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. You know, we tend to think uh, about theology as one of those subjects that uh, we only enter upon if we have a Ph.D., or uh, uh, only people of a certain class can talk about theology. But uh, I don't believe that that's the case. I think what we're seeing in all of these uh, Sabbath episodes, of which there are four in Luke's Gospel, uh, I think there's something about these Sabbath events that tell us that theology is meant for everyday life. Let me tell you what I mean. This is the second uh, Sabbath uh, controversy that Luke shares with Theophilus and shares with us. The first one, two weeks ago, remember Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields and they're they're plucking heads of the grain and uh, they're rubbing it and they're eating it. That was the first time, and that wasn't in a synagogue. And now, this morning, we're looking at the second time, the, the man with a withered hand. And in Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus is going to be uh, in a synagogue and there's going to be a woman there who has a disabling spirit, a a wicked spirit that has caused her body to curl over. And Jesus is is going to heal her. And then in Luke chapter 14, again, uh, another another, uh, Sabbath story in which Jesus is not in a synagogue, Uh, Jesus is greeted by a man who has dropsy, some some kind of uh, skin or tissue condition. That that Sabbath uh, episode doesn't take place uh, in the synagogue. But a question should arise to us is, is this, why are these Sabbath debates included in Luke's gospel? It's cheating just to say the Holy Spirit says so. Right, that's cheating. Why is it, you think, that, that Luke wants us to see these particular Sabbath controversies and, and, and draw them to light for Theophilus that he would be encouraged in his faith? And, and I think it has to do with that, that first issue that I mentioned, uh, theology is only meant for a certain class of people. I think Luke wants to beat that down and tell Theophilus that is not the case. That is not what Jesus taught. Part of these Sabbath, de- these Sabbath debates is the fact that a Sabbath is just an everyday issue. It's just an everyday issue. In fact, a general population of Israel would deal with this issue every week, right? Every week, the last day of every week. There's this Sabbath matter that is in their heads. How to use the Sabbath, uh, what to do on the Sabbath. I think part of the reason Luke includes these debates is because uh, it would resonate with everyone. Yeah, this, this is a weekly matter they deal with everyday life. I think another reason why the uh, Sabbath event is brought to light is because the people who are in the audience, uh, at least in two of these Sabbath events, they're people that are in the synagogue, they're people that are trying to be scrupulous. They're trying to obey the Old Testament with regards to the Sabbath. That's the audience that Jesus is dealing with in this passage. They're people that are, that are there. They're trying to honor the Sabbath. Um, they're being public about it. You know, here I am at the Sabbath. Teach me. And so Luke wants Theophilus to understand that here are, here's, are some scrupulous people that Jesus can address to help them understand the purpose of the Sabbath. 
And it's an everyday event. It's common. We're not talking about a once-in-a-lifetime, weird, bizarre ethical issue that's going to take some serious brain power to unpack. But then there's another reason why Luke brings up these Sabbath matters. Now, these are matters that actually showed a gap in the armor of the Pharisees. This was an issue that many people understood. The Pharisees themselves were not resolved on this matter. The Pharisees themselves weren't sure what exactly constitu- constituted work. And the Pharisees would go off to, a cor- off to a corner and they would debate among themselves if something that they've witnessed is actually unlawful to do on the Sabbath. It was one of the gaps in their armor. Another one of those gaps, by the way, that we've not seen yet in Luke's gospel is uh, the nature of divorce. What are the biblical grounds for divorce? It, It was another gap in the Pharisees' armor. They debated this. They couldn't quite settle on a position. So all of these reasons in terms of, you know, why it is that Luke thinks it's important that these Sabbath controversies uh, be in the mind of Theophilus as he's looking for encouragement out of God's Word, out of the life and ministry of Jesus. These Sabbath debates represent uh, everyday life issues. There's uh, almost always an audience of people that are trying to be scrupulous before God. And the third is, is it represents a gap in this law system that had been concocted by the Pharisees between the Old and the New Testament. Let me tell you what I think this passage is telling us. What Jesus wants his audience to understand, those who are just there to worship on the Sabbath, as well as those who are there to accuse Jesus, uh, Jesus wants them to see that he himself He himself is the good and life-saving focal point of the Christian Sabbath. He himself, in his body, in his work, in his message, he is the center, the focal point of the Sabbath. Let's begin just uh, with kind of a broad sweep of what exactly is happening here. And the first point, I want to simply show you this, that, that there's far more than just the average theological debate that's going on here. Uh, there, there's something that we, that we, uh, that's larger, but something that we can all grasp. Look what happens in the passage. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching. I looked at four I looked at more than four commentaries, four commentaries specifically on verse 6, and none of them, and they're very good commentaries, brought out the fact that Jesus is not doing nothing. Jesus is actually teaching in the synagogue. He's there, and he has a message. This is the fifth time in Luke's gospel we have seen this word for teaching, and we're actually told exactly what Jesus is teaching on. Luke 3.18 and Luke 4.43, Jesus says that I must preach the good news. I have come to proclaim the good news, and that's an important part of this setting. In verse 6, Luke says to Theophilus, Jesus is teaching. What is he teaching about? He's teaching about that beautiful gospel message that he referred to in his, in his first sermon in Isaiah 61, that he is the proclaimer of good news. That's what's happening in this scene. Jesus is preaching the good news. His life, his necessary suffering, his necessary death. Luke doesn't tell us the content of that message, but he has told us that Jesus is all about the proclamation of the good news. And not only that, in verse 6, when this, when this, uh, th- this uh, 
picture opens up, this scene opens up, uh, it seems as though the people are just listening, particularly the man with the withered hand. We know he's seated. And the man with the withered hand, he's just there listening. That's all he's doing. Just like everyone else, except this one subgroup that Jesus is going to uh, address specifically. But the man with the withered hand and everyone else, they're listening to Jesus preach the gospel. Can you imagine what a soul-stirring occasion this might have been? They're listening to the gospel proclaimed by the performer of that gospel. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, Luke is very careful to say, were not listening as much as they were watching. Look at verse 7. They're watching. When Mark uh, tells this scene in Mark chapter 3, Mark says that Jesus is aware of their hardness of heart. So think about this. The scribes and the Pharisees in verse 7 are not so much listening, they're watching Jesus with hard hearts. They're not buying it. And we read further in verse 7, and we find what they are doing is that they're looking for a reason to charge him, to charge him. Uh, that, that word to charge or to accuse is uh, used purely in legal settings. And so imagine they're sitting there, and yeah, there's this guy up front who's, you know, doing the yada, yada, yada thing. But what's in their head is, how are we going to charge this guy? They're actually uh, playing a court scene in their head. How are we going to take him down? Yeah, have you ever done that? We tend to do this when we're worried about something. We have a, a big conversation or a big moment coming up next week, and we actually play in our heads the tape of what, how we want things to unfold. Everyone knows what a tape is, right? Little theologians are actually playing an MP3 in their head. Do you know what an MP3 is? <laughs> what is it called now? Have you done this? You're just anxious and you're like, you're worried about something and you're kind of like you're playing this event. He's going to say this, I'm going to say this, she's going to say this, I'm going to say this. And what's, in, what's going on in the background? Oftentimes we'll do this when we're sleeping. We're not listening to Jesus' admonition in Matthew 16 to not be anxious about the future. Oftentimes we should just be sleeping with a good conscience, but we're playing this MP3 in our heads. And imagine a body of people sitting in the audience and they're playing this in their head. But what's happening in the background, it's not just sleep that they're missing. They're missing the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. They're missing the story of the triune God. That the triune God actually has a plan for their redemption, for their salvation. Praise be to God that one Pharisee like Nicodemus is actually going to believe. Now, you think your anxiety and your worry is just preventing you from having a good night's rest, and you know it's not doing you any good. That's all psychological rationale. What you're doing is actually sinful. But imagine what these men are doing. They're plotting this legal event when they're going to charge Jesus, and they're doing it right when he's proclaiming the gospel to them. You might, might think, of it, think of it like this, is they, they are vaunting themselves that they might crush this Jesus. They are lifting up themselves that they might crush this Jesus, and yet Jesus right there is preaching a message that is the only way that they'll be lifted up, lifted up by his work on the cross. They're, they're lifting themselves up as Jesus preaches the gospel, that they might defeat him. And Jesus is preaching a message about the only means by which they truly can be lifted up 
for all eternity. And verse 7 says that they're looking for reason to charge him, this court scene. And verse 8 tells us that Jesus knows their thoughts. And that's the word that he uses, their, their thoughts. He, he knows this in internal debate. He knows that they're thinking about stuff in their heads. He knows that. He knows that they, there's some kind of bondage that they are wrestling with. That there's something about their legal system that they need to bend just a little bit to catch this guy. And he knows that they are completely in bondage to it. They can't escape from it. Even as he is preaching the gospel of grace, he knows that they're having this internal crisis in their heads. How are we going to get this guy? What can we do to get this guy? I also want to bring, this may be a small point, but it seems to, be, it seems to me that in the text, this, this debate that they're having is not, is not a verbal debate. That they're not talking amongst themselves, at least not in verse 8. It, it's not until the very last verse of, the, of uh, our passage, verse 11, that they're actually discussing among themselves. That's verse 11. But here in verse 8, it's an internal discussion. And Jesus somehow... He can see it. How do you think that is, by the way? Theologians grapple with this. Is this an expression of Jesus' divinity? That he he just, by divine power, he can read what's going on in their minds. I'm not comfortable with that view. I don't like that view. Um, Another argument is that Jesus is just, he just has uh, extraordinary human insightfulness. We're actually told in the Old Testament that members of the clan of Issachar had this wonderful ability to be able to read culture. They just had wisdom and insight and they could analyze culture well. There are people today who can analyze culture well. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's just using this human, uh, human insightfulness to be able to tell what's in their thoughts. I would, I would encourage you to, to study this and think about that. What, what do you think it means that Jesus can actually uh, understand what it is that they're thinking? L- let me throw this into the mix. I don't think it's an expression of his divinity. I'm not convinced it's an expression of uh, uh, remarkable human insightfulness. But let's keep this in mind. Jesus himself debated with the most crafty angel in the cosmos. Jesus himself, for 40 days and for 40 nights, had to deal with that rascal, taking God's word, twisting God's word, that Jesus would be unrighteous in that desert, that he would do anything for food, that he would do anything to exert his authority. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he's dealing with that wicked angel. And I wonder if dealing with that wicked angel presented to Jesus such a kind of suffering that he knows pretty well what's going on in the minds of the Pharisees. They so love their own authority, their own power, their own work. They so desire to be independent from God and to substantiate themselves. And Jesus had 40 days to study that crafty angel. Maybe he learned a thing or two. Maybe he knows very well what's going on in the minds of the Pharisees and where the Pharisees have succumbed to that temptation and have indeed become their own God. Jesus was tempted ferociously to do exactly that, to become his own God, as it were, but he did not. And so when he sees it in the hearts 
and the minds of others, he can pick it out. I suffered with that temptation too, he can say to the Pharisees. I didn't submit. You have sold your soul for your own self-righteousness. Well, how is it that Jesus knows their very thoughts? Is it his divinity? Is it his human insightfulness? Or is it that he himself has suffered a similar sin like that? Or temptation, rather. Uh, I don't know. I'll leave it to you. Uh, Moving on, this is the setting of the scene. And then Jesus does something. Jesus actually makes himself even greater the center of what is happening. Remember, he is preaching, and there is an audience that is listening, and there is an audience that is watching, ready to pounce on him. And Jesus seems to orchestrate the entire scene in such a way that he makes himself the center. Consider, he knows that he's being watched. Verse 7 tells that. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the Pharisees. Verse 8 tells that. And then verse 8 almost seems to say that Jesus interrupts himself. He's preaching the gospel, and he's stops and he addresses one man. Would that creep you out if I did that? I mean, just here, I don't preach anything like Jesus, a, a mere shadow. But if I just, I just like pointed at you and just singled you out, and, and I would love to know when in the sermon Jesus did this. Wouldn't you love to know that? We can ask him if you're here in Christ Jesus. Jesus, what was, where were you in the story of the gospel where you stopped and it seemed appropriate to your message to point out to one man who has a withered hand and then to have that man not only stand up but come to you and make himself the center because you have made him the center? Where in the gospel did that make sense? I would love to know. Was it at the, uh, was it at, uh, was he talking about his future resurrection and then he asked this man to stand up? I don't mean to get all theatrical. Scripture doesn't tell us. We shouldn't speculate. But Jesus is the one who's in control of the scene, preaching the, the good news, and then he stops and he singles out the man with, the, with a withered hand. And he asks that man to come. You ever wonder what's wrong with his hand? There was a history in the early church that the man's hand, uh, actually, it wasn't, a, it wasn't fatal. Luke says it's, a, it's his right hand. Why? Why do we need to know that it's his right hand? Well, in the, in the early church, it was uh, thought or supposed, Scripture doesn't tell us, it was supposed uh, that he was, uh, he was working with his hands and he hurt his hand. And uh, in some way, it, this then, because of his hurt hand, it prevents him from being able to do his job. We, we just, we don't know. And we also don't know if Jesus can see his hand. Do you think he can see his hand? Jesus singles him out, says, come and stand. And Luke is very clear. He says that this man rose and stood. Jesus said, come and stand. And Luke says, the man rose and stood. Two different words for rising and standing. Very clear that this man becomes the center of, the te- of attention because of our Lord. And he sets this man on a stage. And verse 9 gives us this question. Listen carefully. Jesus with the man standing in front of him, turns to the Pharisees. 
he turns to those whom no one has said a word, those whom he knows are watching to accuse him. Right? He's showing his cards. I know that this group of people is here to accuse me. This man rises and stands before the congregation, and Jesus now addresses the Pharisees. And verse 9 tells us this, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Put yourself in their shoes. How comfortable are you with those two options? Seems like there ought to be a third option, like a middle-of-the-road kind of option, but there aren't. There's just these two options. It seems as though Jesus is painting these poor guys into a corner. He says, here are your options. What do you think ought to be done on the Sabbath? To do good? That is, to do something that is beneficial to someone, something that is actually helpful. It's a pretty earthy word. Should you do something that's beneficial to someone, or should you do something to injure someone, to actually hurt them? How do you like those options? Are you kind of leaning one direction yet? But then Jesus offers the same, the same two options, but he changes them a little. He says, how about this? Let's not, go, let's not talk about what is beneficial and what is harmful or injurious. How about what saves the life, or he uses that Greek word suke, loaded, loaded word. To save life, to save that capacity for life, that essence of a human being that animates that human being. Some, uh, some of your Bibles may translate it as soul. I've not seen that translation, but it wouldn't be entirely inappropriate given this word suke. To save a person's soul or life or to destroy a person's soul or life. Probably, in the audience, the bulk of the people would say, yeah, the former, not the latter. Whatever that former means, definitely not the latter. But the Pharisees would have a hard time saying the former, not the latter. What's happened in this scene that makes it so difficult for the Pharisees to answer this question? Well, I think you have to go back to the beginning where Luke tells us Jesus is preaching the good news. He's preaching the gospel. What has he said to them? I think we can draw this conclusion, that Jesus has already said to them that he is the good. He's the beneficial. And not only that, he is the saver of souls, the saver of that animating property in every human being. He is that one. He is the good. He is the saver of souls. And what he's really asking the Pharisees then is this. He's saying, does your law allow me to do good? Does your law allow me to do good? Does your law allow me to be the saver of souls? That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. Is there room in your law for this to happen? And the Pharisees have to say, no. They must say no. The Bible is uh, rather tricky when it talks about what unbelief looks like. It's not so, some people on the world believe in, our, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and some of them are just kind of hanging out there, waiting. They're, they're not sure. They're neutral. The Bible says that you believe in Jesus for salvation or you believe in self for salvation. You either submit to God and His Son, Jesus Christ, or you're a, re you're a rebel. 
and you're cantankerous and you rebel against God as Adam rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. Those are the options, and those are uncomfortable options. But the Bible is very clear, and we're hearing Jesus say that to the Pharisees. They think that they're just looking for a fine point of law, but Jesus is saying, you actually have created your own God, and it's you. You're taking the second person of the Trinity, the, the one who gives the gift of redemption with the blood of his body. You're taking that individual and you're just enfolding him into your system. And he just fits over here in the corner. That's what unbelief is like. But it's also what belief is like. Belief is putting Jesus Christ at the center of all of your hopes and dreams and desires. It's acknowledging that you cannot be the source of your own hope. But only Jesus can. That's why I think what this passage is telling us, specifically looking at verse 9, is that Jesus is the good and life-saving focal point of the Christian Sabbath. Let me say this another way, and uh, tell me if this, if this strikes you. It, it, it was very striking to John Owen and to Charles Spurgeon. Your soul is withered and shrunken and dried up without Christ Jesus. And you'll try to vitalize that soul with a man-made system. And you'll try to give life to that soul with Phariseeism. And you will try to water that soul with your own works. But your soul is like this man's hand, withered, shrunken, and dried up. Your soul could work. It seems to look like something that could actually work. We're not told the man has only four fingers or two fingers. It seems to be a, a regular hand. It's crippled. It's shrunken. And, and it's the kind of member that looks like it could work, but Jesus is saying it can't work. Adam could at one time work righteousness. At one time, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden could work righteousness, but they rebelled. They rebelled. And out of that rebellion, they were never able to work righteousness. Out of that rebellion, they were sorely in need of another worker, someone else to save them. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, with his very word, makes that hand able to work. And without his word, without his speaking, that hand that looks like it might be able to work will never be able to work. Jesus must speak. He must renew. He must recreate. He must, he must give vitality to it. He must regenerate. And when he does so, the finger spread, the hand can work. Well, maybe that's an odd way to look at what's happening. Uh, Spurgeon says a lot of odd things. Let me move on and talk a little bit about uh, some uh, possible applications for our own setting. 
And again, uh, I think that this passage is all about the life-saving that Jesus offers in the good news of the gospel. That's what this passage is primarily about. But it takes place on the Sabbath, and it seems as though, as I'm preaching this text, I can say a few things about the Sabbath. Um, You may find it to be a little dissatisfying. I'm not going to speak specifically about the the Sabbath here. And I I don't think that uh, Luke is doing that for Theophilus. That is, I don't think that there is a full orb theology of the Sabbath that Luke is intending to pass to Theophilus. But let me just say just a couple of things with regards to discerning what does the Sabbath mean to me today? How do I live my life um, with this weekly Sabbath? Uh, One thing I want, I want to just say two things just as very general principles, very general. The first is this, it is very dangerous for you to ignore the Sabbath. Clearly, Jesus upholds the Sabbath himself with his own attendance. Clearly, Jesus is upholding the Sabbath with his own attendance. He is there. Remember uh, Matthew 5.17, where Jesus says that he doesn't come to uh, abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't ignore the fourth commandment. He is there with people acknowledging the Sabbath. That's the first thing to notice. Jesus does not give you permission to ignore the Lord's day the Christian Sabbath. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You ought to beware hair-splitting the Sabbath. Now here I'm speaking of my speaking to my own ilk of all the great reformational confessions of faith. My own personal uh, confession of faith is one that actually has the most number of words addressed about the Sabbath. I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with that, but I subscribe to it. I love the confessional statement, but I also acknowledge that, that my confessional statement actually says far more about the Sabbath than any of the others that I also like. And I'm just saying to all of us, and those, again, particularly of my ilk, to beware of hair-splitting the Sabbath. Clearly, that is what the religious leaders are doing in this passage. You see that, yes? That's clearly what the religious leaders in this passage are doing. They're hair-splitting what exactly can and cannot be done on the Sabbath. And Jesus, rather than taking their complex system of laws and then duking it out with him, you know those plastic toys with the little boxers? It's like they're boxing Jesus with this precise system, and Jesus ought to to present a, a better precise system, and he doesn't. He doesn't. They say there are 39 unlawful things to do on the Sabbath, and Jesus doesn't counter all of those 39 things. Beware of hair-splitting the Sabbath. It's clearly what the Pharisees are doing, and it would seem as though Jesus is not doing that. Okay, so those are, the, those are the two broad principles. Let me say four things real quick and uh, pray for us. The first is this. You must treat the Sabbath as a unique day. Everywhere in the New Testament, the people are gathering together on a specific day. All the gospel writers mention the gathering of the people on the Lord's day. It is a unique day. It is different from all the others. The New Testament is very, very clear about that. 
And I want you to hear that. That's the first thing of four. The second thing of four is this. The Sabbath, actually, because it's a unique day, is going to require some preparation. I want you to listen to this statement. I'm kind of tooting my own horn here because this comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. All of our elders and our deacons subscribe to this document. Um, Certainly not all of our members, but our elders and deacons we ask to specifically subscribe to this. Listen to this beautiful statement. I love this. Again, you have to... You have to prepare for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparation of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, gather. During the week, do you think about the Sabbath? Do you actually do things on a, on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday in such a way that it's, it's going to open up the Sunday so that you're not, you don't have to cram those things into a Sunday? Do you actually prepare for the Sabbath? I think that not only is the day unique, different from all others, but it needs to be treated differently, and that's going to require your preparation. That's the second thing that I think is important. Here's the third. Jesus has to be the center of the Sabbath. Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 are going to tell us that when we become Christians, when we become believers, we actually enter into the rest of Jesus, the rest of Jesus. How do you describe becoming a Christian? I say yes to the gospel. That's fair. I believe in Jesus. That's fair. I was once lost, but now I'm found. That's fair. But Hebrews 4 says that you enter into another person's rest. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's why Jesus has to be the center of your earthly rest, because Jesus is the worker of your eternal rest. As you gather with a body of believers, as you should, are you together grateful for the work of Jesus? It's that work that has secured your rest. Do you gather with brothers and sisters who believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? That is a gathering that that makes Jesus the center of the Sabbath. When you do ministries that are good, that benefit others, uh, ministries of, uh, of mercy, that's what Jesus is doing to this man. Uh, when you do ministries of mercy on the Sabbath, are you doing those in gratitude for the work of Jesus? Or are you just doing it to look good before your neighbors? If you look two weeks ago at the beginning of Luke chapter 6, the disciples are actually hungry. And it seems as though they're eating on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, that they might be able to eat. So maybe there are things that that are necessary for you to do on the Sabbath to sustain physical life. And while that's true, are you doing those necessary things out of gratitude for the perfect work of Jesus? I know this is is hard to flesh out. I, I, I get that. But I'm trying to say what's clearly there in the passage. That Jesus has to be the center of all that we do on the Sabbath. Our ministries of benefit or mercy... Are, are, are the things that we have to work for the sake of necessity, is their gratitude to Jesus in those endeavors. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing, fourth thing is this. There's two Sabbath episodes in Luke that don't take place in the synagogue. Isn't that interesting? One of them, it's just a bunch of guys walking through a field. They're just walking through a field. And another of them, they're, they're at a dinner party. So, it seems as though Jesus is okay with dinner parties on the Sabbath. 
because he's there honoring the Sabbath and his perfect righteousness at a dinner party. And I think that tells us this, that the gratitude that we have for our Lord and Savior is not a gratitude that we express just here. The entire Sabbath day is a day in which we show gratitude to Jesus. That day may take us on a walk through a field. That day may take us to a dinner party. That day may take us to uh, a social gathering among non-believers. But in all of those contexts, Jesus in our minds, in our hearts, has to be the center of that day. I told you that I would frustrate you. Did I say the word frustrate? Make you angry? They're just these general principles. Let me state the four of them and let's pray. Um, it's a un- unique day. It's different from all the others. Uh, and I think all the gospel writers write that. And I think that connects to the fact that you have to prepare for this day. Prepare that it would be a different day than your common days. And then the third is this, is that Jesus has to be the center of the Sabbath. It's his work, after all, that allows you to enter into his rest. And then the fourth is this, is the gratitude isn't just here, until, you know, like 12 20. The gratitude is for the entire day of what your Savior has done for you. That's truly the Lord's day. This passage, say one more time, tells us that Jesus himself, his body, his work, his praises, his glory, is the good and life-saving focal point of the Christian Sabbath. Let me uh, lead us in prayer together, and then we'll confess our faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we trust your word. We love your word. We desire to not go beyond your word, but at the same time, uh, we desire to make sacrifices of our lives for your glory and your word. We don't want to go beyond your word, but we also don't want to be uh, lazy. We want to love your word and to suffer for your word sacrifice ourselves for your word, that our lives would be pleasing not to the world, but pleasing to you. Thank you for gathering us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.